CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast, is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. The Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu slash nonfiction to start your journey now, as in right now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published. Goucher's MFA in nonfiction. CNF is also brought to you by Baypath University's MFA in creative nonfiction. Discover your story. Baypath is the first and only university offering no residency, fully accredited MFA, focusing exclusively on creative nonfiction. Attend full or part-time from anywhere in the world. In the Baypath MFA, you'll find small online classes and a dynamic and supportive community. You'll master the techniques of good writing from acclaimed authors and editors. Learn about publishing and teaching through professional internships and complete a master's thesis that will form the foundation for your memoir or collection of personal essays. Special elective courses include contemporary women's stories, travel and food writing, mm, food, family history, spiritual writing, and an optional week-long summer residency in Ireland, with guest writers including Andre DeBuse III, Anne Hood, Mia Gallagher, and others. Start dates in late August, January, and May. Might have missed that May one, but think about August and January. Find out more at baypath.edu slash MFA. Oh, man. Feeling riffy. Let's hit it. Ooh. Hey, CNFers. What the CNF is up with you? I'm Brendan O'Mara, and this is CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast, where I speak to badass writers, filmmakers, radio producers, and podcasters about the art and craft of telling true stories we get into it man elbow deep in the shit i'm cranked on several ounces of cold brew so i'm super pumped to welcome sonia huber to the show but first i want to tell you that you should be subscribing to this hot mess wherever you get your podcast you should also join me on twitter and instagram at cnfpod fun stuff to keep you engaged and motivated and inspired, and maybe a little entertained. Also consider leaving a rating. Also consider leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm not going to edit that. They help with the show's credibility. At least I think they do. If they don't, well, leave one anyway. Okay, so here's the part of the show where I, I riff a little bit. Riff. This past week, I interviewed a famous and prominent author. It'll air in mid-July, so you can connect the dots when the time arrives. I've I, I've read nearly all of his 11 books, and he's done like 3,000 interviews, and I've listened to most of them. So I was super prepared, but also like freaking out in a way that I usually don't. Normally, the more prep I do, the calmer I get. Yeah, If I feel like I'm freaking out, I just like do more prep, study more, and then tend to feel more. And then I can just sit in the pocket and read the defense. That's how I see it anyway. But also the podcast is like, I see it at kind of like a dinner party or something. And, and I'm the host and I want to be a good host. And I'm always worried that the guest 
is not having a good time. I want to make sure they always have a drink, that there's always chips and guac available, that the music is sensible but not too loud. I was real worried about that because this guy, who not, not only interviews a lot of people, he's been interviewed by even more, but he's also someone who thinks about interviewing a lot. So the guy knows what he likes, and it's sort of like... He knows he knows the game inside and out, so it's like you want to stay a step ahead and make sure everyone is having a good time. It's all about keeping the guests engaged, and I think he was, but I don't know, and frankly, I think I choked. It was like someone was waving noodles behind the basket during free throws only. I was the one waving the noodles. Okay, so this episode is also brought to you by the word disquietude. A noun, disquietude, a state of uneasiness or anxiety. Such passages reflect a sense of disquietude, of alienation even. Disquietude. So Sonia is a prolific writer of five books and essays, and she wore a killer headset, so she sounds like a straight-up baller. She's also all over the place. Her work, New York Times, creative nonfiction, brevity. She's in your head, man. So, this is it. Here she is, CNFers. Ooh. Well, so, you're, uh, I understand you grew up in Illinois. And, That's uh, right. So, uh, yeah, tell what kind of what kind of kid were you? What, what did your parents do, and uh, where did the writer Sonia come from? Well, let's see. My parents uh, they ran, and uh, my mom still works at sort of a family business in radiation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so they used to do sort of monitoring of radiation for hospitals, and now they do more industrial radiation cleanup. My parents do nuclear waste, as does my brother. Wow. Yeah. Nice. And you became, uh, you became the writer out of the group. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, I did my, my fourth grade career poster on the next generation of radiation safety officers, but I didn't go into that. Wow. Um, yeah. And then I was just, you know, I, I grew up in sort of a, a small town south of Chicago and, uh, just, you know, probably like everybody who turns into a writer, like I was a nerdy reader. And, uh, and then I was always, you know, I, I just been thinking about this recently, but, um, my mom would always get like Irma Bombeck books from the library. Do you know her? I'm unfamiliar. (laughs) (laughs) She used to do this, like in the sixties and seventies, this sort of like funny observations of motherhood kind of a thing. And I really do think that that was one of my first, you know, seeing nonfiction around the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did columns for the school paper that got me with, uh, I, w- I received threats to get beat up for various things. Wow. <laughs> that was exciting. Yeah. You know, like as an eighth grader, if you propose school uniforms, or more nutritious lunches. That's the kind of kid I was, seriously. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then I got into activism, and that sort of sort of uh, fueled a lot of stuff I was doing with both my time and my writing, like from college and then after college. So that I think that also informs a lot of what I ended up what I end up writing about. 
Nice, nice. And so as you were developing as a, as a young writer, even, even in high school, uh, did you have any cherished mentors or at least someone who recognized that you might have had a kernel of ability and was just like, oh, Sonia, you know, like, it looks like you've got a little talent here. Why don't you just kind of lean into this and, and give you the permission to keep going? Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had, you know, a slew of great teachers and um, we didn't, we didn't actually have a, like a newspaper in my high school or any creative writing classes, but um, someone sort of saw that I was interested in it and let me do um, an independent study. And so I would write these press releases for like local papers about what was going on at the high school. And I decided to veer off from that and do this big story about why our school didn't have a newspaper. Hmm. And it was a very strict sort of law and order south of Chicago's big, big farm town school. And so when I, um, showed them this piece, they were like, Oh, will you publish this and we're going to expel you? (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. But, but that's sort of the, one of the first experiences of like, Oh my gosh, you can write things and they could actually like make people really mad or threaten people. And that's sort of exciting, you know? So, well, yeah, it's kind of like you you getting uh, threatened to be, bullied based on something you wrote like which isn't too far from the truth as you move up the ranks of journalism is you know the threats just escalate as as does the impact of a good piece of writing exactly and so while that was really hard it was also like a clue that like there's something here to keep working on you know right (laughs) and then when I was in college I was sort of like I ended up being a socianthro major and I wasn't really as connected to English or writing. I mean, I was always doing it, but I didn't, I stopped thinking that I could be a writer. So. Hmm. And why was that, uh, that you stopped thinking that you could be a writer? You know, I went to a big public school and then from there for college, I went to like a sort of a Midwestern private liberal arts school. And it was just kids from a bunch of different places and a mix of people who I hadn't run into before class wise or location wise. And, um, I think I was just intimidated. And so I kind of downgraded my own, like my outlook about what was possible for me a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in the long term that school was a really great experience, but, uh, in the short term, it made me think, uh, that I was a little dumb. <laughs> uh huh. So, yeah, so it took, it took a long time to sort of work back out of that. But I think, I mean, the side benefit of uh, having studied socianthro, for example, in college has just continued to fuel my writing, too. Even great, well, the great narrative journalists or anything or anyone who spends a lot of time with a subculture of some kind, it it kind of is its own form of anthropology. Oh, totally. Yeah. And so much about like, you know, figuring out how to elicit personal stories. And I feel like one of the things that's so important is that uh, anthropology and ethnography talk a lot about the ethics of getting narrative and what happens to a person who gives their narrative, you know? So I, I, I continue to approach writing with that framework. Mm. And when you were in, in college, uh, what were you, yeah, I know you were sort of off what you would consider a, a writerly path, so to speak, but, um, what were you reading at the, at the time that maybe kept at least one toe in the water? Oh, I was reading, um, like all kinds. I was reading a lot of poetry. Like Mm -hmm. I ended up trying to do a lot of my 
anthropology and sociology projects about poetry and literary stuff. Let's see. So a lot of like international, that's how I got more into reading international works. Oh, and then just a lot of anarchists. <laughs> I was hanging nice. out with the anarchists in college. So yeah, I got a, a good helping of uh, radical direct democracy. <laughs> <laughs> so, As we all do, right? <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> so how did you, uh, at what point do you get back on that sort of that, that path to maybe fulfilling maybe earlier dreams of becoming becoming a writer of you know nonfiction and and other things I think after you know I was I went into social work uh, mm -hmm. and, and was a counselor after college and then um, you know had a series of bad jobs and then just started writing again like started trying to write stories and poems as a way to cope or just like do something that felt fulfilling. Right. I mean, my job felt fulfilling, but it was also really hard. And I just, you know, then, so then I turned back to writing just for myself. And then I also started, you know, just going back to journalism and doing like volunteer stories for political papers on various issues. And, you know, then once again, saw like people see what I'm writing is useful. And so then I got to sort of turn towards writing in work I did for nonprofits. Mm. And then I was working for um, a group that supported student newspapers. And that led then back to working for this magazine in Chicago called In These Times, which is still around and which is wonderful. And, uh, and then from there, I went to journalism school at Ohio State, just sort of wasn't planned, but they had a fellowship that I got, was lucky to get. And then while I was in journalism school, all the journalists were saying like, oh, you got to take this class. It's called creative nonfiction. It's amazing. And I mean, at that time, I hadn't heard of creative nonfiction as a thing. Yeah. And so I took, you know, my first workshops. This was just after Ohio State started offering creative nonfiction. I took these workshops with Bill Rohrbach. And like my head just blew open. I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. Mm. So I was like 28. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, and I, and I apologize to listeners who hear me say this all the time, but it was uh, the, you know, the book for me that kind of blew open what narrative nonfiction or creative nonfiction could be was um, John McPhee's The Survival of the Bark Canoe. Oh, you know, yeah. just, just his style. Like, I was like, oh, that's the kind of journalism that kind of appeals to my taste and, and my temperament, especially. And, and totally. So, and, uh, so I can remember that, especially. So in, in this, in this class that you, that you took, was there, a, aside from the course itself, kind of blowing your mind, um, what were, what were some books or essays you were reading that, that, equally uh, showed you what was possible. I had actually, so during the, during the journalism program, I found, uh, John, or I found, uh, AG's let us now praise famous men. Mm -hmm. And that just, I mean, that was a life changing moment just to see what he did and how adventurous his writing was. And yeah, I remember the experience of reading that book, you know, and then I was like, this is what I want. And then I started reading um, a lot of George Orwell's nonfiction, and that sort of led to thinking about, you know, like McPhee and, um, and Maxine Hong Kingston was another one. So I started to just learn about the world that was there, you know, which 
So I think sadly, we definitely don't encounter often in school, or at least I didn't, you know? Right. Yeah, I, I, my experience, I didn't even know it existed until, let's see, I, I, had, I stayed an extra year in undergrad to add journalism. I stayed a fifth year and did journalism one year. And I had a literary journalism class with Norman Sims. And, oh, cool. And I, I had no idea what it was. It just kind of sounded cool. And uh, I needed to cram in you know, a year's worth of cr- journalism credits into a year. So I was just like <laughs> throwing course loads on and uh that really opened the book and he you know he talked about mcphee and oranges and and that that book and it was just like oh like that you can it it, in in a lot of ways it kind of ruined fiction for me because yeah because all of a sudden i was like wow i can part of the appeal of finding like a, a wonderful story is like you can actually if it's done well it's like well it actually happened and that yeah. to me elevated the the appeal around a, a certain book like oh this happened it wasn't just an imagination or a, a mosaic of things that might have happened but you just don't know but then but right you know but behind someone like McPhee it's like yes it, it did happen and it was shaped but it, shaped in everything but it was still like it, it happened and that was big for me right and that you want to like i've done i've started this thing that god knows when i'll finish it but i've decided i'm going to read everything mcphee has written cuz i just love him so much yeah and uh and so with with a book like oranges or with any of his stuff like what's so amazing about it is that the structure is well you know he's a master of structure yeah but that you don't know where he's going to go next you know, and so mm-hmm. instead of a narrative or an argument, it's sort of this fairy. It's like a snowflake. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, oh, gosh, I just admire so much what he does. But that's so it sort of reveals like what the fun of it is in writing it and reading it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And his his latest book, draft number four. Or, oh, my I, God, it's so good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where he just talks about uh, about the structure and how he just labors over it and and that's that's where the art and the creativity can come in when you have your verifiably true facts and everything you've done your reporting and like that's where you get creative and you can exactly. get fun have fun and um create you know just take things that seem so esoteric and kind of dull on the surface and actually make it gripping exactly exactly yeah i appreciated that book and i really loved how he was so open about his own the struggle in his writing process because he makes it look super easy right you know and so the fact that he also revealed that the structure is like this laborious thing to have to come upon after numerous failures is just it's beautiful and i guess uh, just before we were speaking uh i i, I interviewed uh, scott eden who's an investigative journalist for espn mm-hmm. the magazine and he and i got to talking uh, a, a lot about McPhee and structure. Uh, so mm. it's kind of funny that we're both on awesome. consecutive <laughs> conversations to get to talk about McPhee. Uh, I guess there's a big essay from, in the introduction to the John McPhee reader uh, that really deconstructs his approach to structure as well. So, and, and that's something I have not read, and I re- want to dig into that. Oh, God, I have to look at that. Because he has a couple different readers, but I don't think I've read the first one. I've read just enough, like the later one. Yeah. Yeah, so that's definitely a resource worth <laughs> worth digging into. Uh, awesome. It, it makes it kind of approachable in a way, too, that that there is the mechanics behind it, and there is kind of a playbook you can follow, right? Like it, you know, yes. you, right? Like, isn't that part of the appeal that, like, it's work, and you just kind of have to keep smashing your head against the wall, and eventually you, you can get there? 
Definitely. And that there are templates and examples, right? And sometimes you just come upon one of them that works, but you can also follow the example of what other people done have done to see if that works for your subject matter, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And with, with your, with respect to your own work, and um, I, I always liken this to, um, we always know what kind of, say if you're a baseball player or something, you kind of know what hard work is. Like you, every night, you know, you go into the basement and hit 500 balls and it's just like, okay, that's, hard work, your hands are chapped and bleeding, blah, blah, blah. You input any other athletic thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's harder to define with, with writing or the arts what it means to have tenacity and rigor and hard work. It's not as mm. maybe easily measurable. So I wonder mm-hmm. maybe how you define that so you know you're sort of paddling in the right direction, so to speak. Oh, that's awesome. Well, first of all, I really like I use athletic metaphors when I teach writing because I oh, really nice. I, I really believe in that. And I, I've seen it with, you know, myself, like I tell my students, I don't necessarily think like of my class in grad school that I was the most talented person. But I know that um, if I show up every day to like look at a piece of writing and really then go through every day the agony of like how much does this suck (laughs) (laughs) and how hopeless it is. Like, that's just part of my writing process, you know? Yeah. Um, And uh, like, I'm working on this massive, massive book right now about the gold coast of Connecticut and like income disparity and racial discrimination in Fairfield County. And it's too big. It's like too much. Right. But I know that if I just keep picking away at a corner of it, like I'll eventually get it into shape. But as far as thinking about, like, I really do just think about, like, blocks of time where I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. And I know that if I can tolerate that for for long enough, I think that's what makes people stop writing is that the not knowing what you're doing feels so terrible. Yeah. Well, there's that. <laughs> and and it, it, you, you have to be incredibly patient. Um, I, I I've said this before on the on the show that. I think what exacerbates people's anxiety about maybe the 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 pace of their writing career or mm-hmm. artistic career is oftentimes you see um you know 30 the 30 under 30 lists or something that make you feel like totally devalued if you haven't accomplished anything by age 30. Right. Uh, on the other side of that those 30 people have a ton of pressure on them and that's its own morass. Um social media is also just crippling in terms of comparison and toxicity so it's it can make it can make the artist very you know feel very inadequate and that's just not a good mindset to approach the work oh definitely well and also like I mean I feel like like I work a lot and the project that I'm working on now like I've done more memoiristic stuff but this is very um the piece that I'm working on now has a really strong research component so uh you know the amount the amount of drafts and just restructuring that has to come between having some information and figuring out how to structure it and then figuring out how to make it readable and make sense and plug into a larger structure is just, you know, people ask me how many drafts and I don't even think of it in terms of drafts, you know, it's just like looking at these pieces and moving them around and moving them around. Like really it's in terms of years rather than, you know, just yeah. sitting down and writing a book. So, yeah, how do you, how do you um 
or I should say, like, what what appeals to you more, like the the generative phase of getting that big mass together, or editing and revising? I think I love I love editing and revising. Mm-hmm. I think because I feel like at that point, I mean, and I I too I really I I have I'm in a couple different writing groups, and I know at this point in my life that um that I often get so close to something that I can't see what's not working, Mm. you know? So I love the point where I've actually got something on the paper that's in my voice. Right. And then I feel like it can start to have a conversation with other people. But that first phase where I'm just trying to figure out like, what does this all mean? (laughs) (laughs) Like that's like that, that is for me, like in this current project, just wading through that, like, and it's almost like this weird thing where, that seems to take the bulk of the time with this project that I'm working on now. And then once I start to get going and I start to get the slimmest sense of a structure, then the work starts to build up a lot of momentum. Right. But I I think like, I mean, I'm doing this thing, like it's, it's honestly, it's from the glaciers on forward. So it's a little unwieldy. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And, uh, and so I think there's a lot of, I don't know if you've had this with your writing, but like where you're just staring at it and staring at it sometimes for a week and then you start to get a glimmer of what a structure might be or what what an argument might be. But sometimes it just takes so long. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, oftentimes it is just staring at it and then even just writing in a completely you just got to like create your own momentum somehow, like its own yeah. flywheel, even if it doesn't make any sense. And then sometimes it's just having a, a notebook right next to you to like just dump mm-hmm. whatever random stuff is coming into your head. And then you're like, I don't know. There are just any any kind of weird workarounds that kind of hack into your brain to try to get you to make sense of whatever's going on in front of you. It's, it's all a mess. Totally. Definitely. I mean, I think and I think, too, like one of the reasons why I'm pretty productive as a writer is because I have a good tolerance for my own really shitty sentences. Like yeah. I, I'm, f- I'm fine with writing something terrible. That's half like XXX to come to come, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then gradually working up towards uh, something that makes sense. And half of it will just be like notes to myself and then, you know, something gradually coheres. But I have a friend who really writes, She's a fiction writer, but I, but she really writes one beautiful sentence before writing the next. Mm. And I just couldn't, I think, you know, different people's brains work differently and I've got to kind of rough everything out first. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be able to do that personally. I don't know a whole lot of people that can do that because in so many ways that, that perfectionism will keep you from actually getting to anything good like I think a lot of times yeah and maybe it works for her and that's and that's great but I think a lot of mm-hmm. times a lot of good stuff comes from working through a ton of bad work and eventually you get to good work I'm I'm of that ilk like I'll I write am a, so of that yeah yeah like I'll, I'm co- totally cool writing a thousand words to get to a hundred good ones yes exactly or I'll feel like sometimes like because I'm doing a lot of research now like, oh, I'll read a book and then be like, okay, fine. I got one sentence that I needed from reading that book. Yeah. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> yeah, but it was totally worth it because that, that one sentence or that information from that from that book is going to be so valuable to whatever you're working on. And exactly. It, and it's going to be loaded with everything, just, I guess, some context or subtext from you having read that whole thing and not just plucking out that one sentence. Like, it's going to have a bit more charge behind it, I bet. 
You would hope, right? Knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, since you're working on such a titanic project, uh, you can probably speak to this well now. Um, how how do you go about? You know, what's your approach to research and then organizing your research in notes so that you can access it later for your writing? I use. Um, I started using Scrivener probably like four years ago, and uh, and that's just. You know, I've just dump everything into there, but not completely. Like, I wish I had a completely organized research process, but what it actually is, it's like a lot of stuff in Scrivener and then a lot of stuff in Word documents and then other stuff in Evernote. Mm-hmm. And so I'm all, I'm sort of circling always between those three things. And, uh, and then I've got binders actually. So I've got four, now I've got four different containers <laughs> Yeah, and I'm at a weird place in the book because I just had to restructure it. And so, oh, wow. uh, yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I mean, I do, I do think, like, uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to have, to not have Evernote and Scrivener where both of those are searchable. Like, I'm old enough that I remember still doing uh research papers when it was just index cards like yeah. before you you know what i mean yeah yeah I had and to like do this that too. would this would be like this would be horrifying <laughs> you know so yeah i have a lot of timelines and that's actually something that i i've i've used since my first book when i'm when i'm using history i always have to have a master timeline that just says like in this one it's like from the 1600s on and just like listing different things that happened because i uh that helps me kind of get oriented in time. So yeah, that's another tool that I use. Wow. And when you're in the throes of a, of a big writing project uh, and you're in the, the messy middle of it all, like what is your, what's your approach to, to the middle where you just have to put your head down and, and grind through it's, Mm, it's an ugly part to be. That is exactly, that's the feeling, the grind. (laughs) But I really think like um, like there's something for me that is connected between research and writing poetry. Like uh, like there's this phase that I'm in now, say, where before I even understand the shape of a chapter, I have to just like leave my mind completely open and like not even – I have to like – let my mind be completely open and sort of like let associations come. And so rather than trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be writing about, I will have researched this whole thing and to know what the content is. And, and then after like, I have to just tolerate that state of being where I don't know what is supposed to come first. And then something will emerge if that makes sense. But like, it's, it's just tolerating the discomfort And then I sort of start pursuing one narrative Mm. and then, you know, just like we were saying before, like just accumulating pieces. Yeah. But, but it's that like, it's, it's understanding that. And I talk about this in my, with my students a lot. Like I think some people are really gifted linear thinkers and some people are very associative Mm. and both, both ways of thinking are equally valid and they just, they produce good stuff, but just through different logics. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I just, I know I'm an associative person. And so I've got to build a chapter through associations that might not 
make sense on the surface, but I eventually figure out what they mean. Mm-hmm. But but it means I feel like that I'm always going in kind of blind, just sort of with a gut sense of like what matches up. And then eventually I figure out what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Most writers can attest to this. It's often a, a, a somewhat lonely endeavor uh, mm-hmm. and often fraught with self-doubt. And right. so, <laughs> so how, how do you fight off feelings of loneliness and doubt when you're in the course of a, a a big project, and it can be a small, smaller project too. But uh, but it, it's the feelings are are real, so to speak. So how, how do you approach that? I mean, it's good. I, I get together with one of my writing groups about once a month, and we sort of our half of our function is like we'll read each other's stuff, but half of our function is cheering each other on, mm-hmm. you know. And we'll come and sort of process the oh my god, I hate this book so much, and then the rest of the the women in the group will be like oh it's the best thing ever you know so we're each other's cheering sections and then i i mean that's one function too like of social media that i find really valuable it's just connection with writers so we can each complain about our books yeah so yeah yeah and that's that's great a few people i have on the show actually speak kind speak nicely of social media so that's kind of uh-huh. it's kind of nice to hear that you've actually it is actually something that helps you feel connected uh so how how do you balance the use of it so you don't get like sucked in mm-hmm. as too much where you won't be able to get any work done so how do you balance that with you know your your life and actually getting work done oh yeah i mean i think like i during my writing i think that's one of the things that i do is like i have a really low bar for production so as long as i'm sitting and like <laughs> trying to write like i'm allowed to go on twitter that's just my own my own rules. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think partially cuz my bar is so low. Like I I don't know that just works for me. And so like I don't know, I find the uh I love the nonfiction social media community. Um I find at least the folks that I'm connected to to be really encouraging. I find lots of recommendations for great stuff to read. I don't know. You know, what would you say in terms of your own work um, that you're that you're better at today than, say, you were five years ago, maybe even 10 years ago? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think I think I think the one thing that I am better at is that knowing that the process feels crappy, but that I can I I can probably make a book out of stuff eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think really tolerating that feeling of being lost in the middle of a project. And I I also like uh I, I one thing I've sort of seen really steadily escalate is the amount of information I'm able to take in and shape. Mm. Like I I noticed that so I'd written this short guide uh, for squint books on Hillary Clinton. It was just something that they asked me to do. And then it had a deadline in like three months or something. Mm. And so, and I hadn't, I didn't know anything about Hillary Clinton. I was just that when she was around the first time I was in the middle of being an anarchist. And so, you know, never the twain shall meet. (laughs) But, um, and so then I really had to sort of just read an enormous amount of stuff about her and about the, the nineties and, um, ended up being able to do it. And, uh, I think since then I've sort of started to just trust my own ability to, uh, to read as much as I really, really want to read about a subject. Like, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I've always loved to read, but I've I've really started to see that one of the things that I can do is multidisciplinary stuff. Mm. So not just something about one topic, but, you know, I think that's one of the wonderful things about creative nonfiction is being able to take two things that don't seem to belong together and figure out how they can intersect. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's something that I'm, that I trust myself more with these days and like figuring out the, the connection between two unlike things, if that makes sense. Right. So what were those anarchist days like and how did you, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, what kind of person were you at that time and, uh, and who were you when you came out of it? (laughs) Um, well, I mean, I hung out with some very, so this was in Minneapolis it was they were really like some very sweet very community oriented nerdy anarchists like myself so <laughs> um you know we just we read we had reading groups we read about i don't know all kinds of stuff um we made zines we did street theater i shaved my head i dropped out of school for a little bit my mom was not happy but then <laughs> you know eventually i went back to school and everything was fine Gosh, that was such a great educational period in my life because, you know, the anarchists are like question everything. Yeah. And I had really, I mean, I was raised, you know, very Catholic, good girl. And uh, while I'm still that way in a lot of ways, like having that thread of like question authority has just been a great thing in my life. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's given me a little bit of... uh, kind of like a counterbalance to my, you know, my tendency to just accept things as they are. Right. And how do you start your day or what's your kind of a morning routine, especially when you know you've got some, uh, you got some writing you need to tackle? Caffeine. Caffeine? Yeah. Yeah. That's really, (laughs) that's like basically the underpinnings of my writing process. So I'll, I'll usually like, you know, my my husband teaches high school, so he leaves really early, and then I got to take my son to school, and then the house is quiet, and I, I, I think in terms of an hour, that's part of my, like, set the bar really low idea that I've developed, like, sometimes I'll even, like, if I don't want to write, which I think happens, like, every day, you know, I don't hate writing, but I will just not do it if I don't make myself. <laughs> right. So, so if it's like 802, I'll even like write the time that I start on my legal pad and just say like, okay, go to 902. And eventually I'll get interested in, I mean, pretty quickly I'll say, okay, how can I make some order of this? Or can I write a couple of good sentences? It's just the, I have all these tricks to just get started because it's the starting that just seems like I don't think it's that I don't want to do it, but it's just the overwhelm mm-hmm. kind of. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I kind of employed something similar. I, I, I had to um, get through an entire uh, book's worth of edits on this uh, baseball memoir that I'm uh-huh. in the middle of. And it was just overwhelming. But I, I started this thing where I just every night I set a timer for 20 minutes. And it was just That's like awesome. Go go for twenty and see how much you can get done, and then, and then when twenty minutes is up, you just you're done, 
and that's right. it. And there, then I would not have any like muscle fatigue or soreness the next day. It actually kind of created its own momentum. Like I was looking forward to that 20 minutes instead of grind, you know, and then it, it was only 20 minutes. You can do so much in 20 minutes if you just focus. Exactly. And then you're totally focused for that length of time because you know you get a break at the end, right? So it doesn't seem that scary. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. it was great and I was I I got through it in a you know relatively short amount of time. You know, it took maybe 8 weeks to get through the whole book 20 in 20 minute chunks. Well, and that's awesome. Yeah, it was it was great. I was like, "Wow, it, uh, you know, looking back, I was like it only took 8 weeks." I'm like, "Just think of where you were 8 weeks ago and think of where you are now." It's like, "Wow, you got through that and you can send it off to the editor and we'll work on round the next round when, when those come in. But it was like, yeah, just take these little bites and don't work out too hard. Otherwise you won't be able to work out tomorrow. Right. Right. And there's that anxiety. Like, I don't know, like I always do struggle with that feeling of like, Oh, it's been fine until now, but this is going to be the thing I'm not going to be able to figure out, you know? Yeah. And so to know, like, if you just like, again, like you were saying back to the athletic metaphors of if you just do something, it doesn't have to be brilliant. You know, it yeah. just has to be like enough for that time period. So absolutely. And it, do you find that you have a, a collection of books that you that you revisit or reread over and over again, just to kind of remind yourself how it's done? Yeah. So I like I, I think a lot about voice and how like different there's a there's a voice that each project needs that I usually haven't exactly found, but when I find it, like it's, it's the way to get a book done. Do you know what I mean? Or to get, to get the last part of the book done Mm -hmm. or to shape, shape the narrative. So often what'll happen is that I'll write a book, but the voice or the tone will be wrong. And I'll sort of latch onto a book that has a voice that I want. So, uh, so I was writing this memoir. It's, it's unpublished, but it's in progress. Um, and I just, I wanted it to sound like Annie Dillard, mm. you know? So, uh, you know, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek re- remains like a really, really important book to me. I think I, oh, I did read that in college. Yeah. And I read it as like in the context of environmental awareness, mm-hmm. but not really thinking about like how she had written it. Like I hadn't read, I didn't read it as a writer. I read it for content. Right. And then later going back, I was like, wait, it's such, it's so stupid, but like, of course someone wrote this, like, how did she write it? You yeah. know? And, uh, and so, but Annie Dillard's something about her voice, just, you know, I, I don't write like her, but I wish I did. <laughs> so, uh, so sometimes if I'm really stuck with something, I'll go back to her and I'll think about, you know, cause I feel like my job often in writing is to really shape language around facts so seamlessly that it, that the reader doesn't notice that they're getting facts, you Mm -hmm. know, or that they're transported by the voice. And I feel like she does that perfectly. And so, uh, yeah, she's, she's a person that I'll go back to when I just, when I feel like I'm writing a research paper and what I really need to do is think about language. Mm. Do you have any other ones too, besides Besides Pilgrim to Tinker Creek, um, I I like to read a lot of Virginia Woolf. I mean, she's another person who has such her own musical 
uh, style and language that, you know, when I'm starting to really hate making sentences, Mm -hmm. if I just read even a little bit of hers and it can be anything like her letters or her essays, that's like a breath of fresh air, you know? So, yeah. And then of course, you know, anything by McPhee. I just think he's, he's fearless. Yeah. If you ever find yourself kind of in a creative funk of sorts uh, or in a slump, um, what kind of self-talk do you employ to pull yourself back out of it? I will sometimes. So I, I, I'm always writing two projects at once because I'm always like cheating on one project with the other project. (laughs) Like, like, like often I'll go to this big book and I'll just some or not often, but sometimes I'll be at a juncture where I don't know what to do next and I don't have any energy for it. And so then I'll let myself play. I'll say, okay, there's nothing happening here. Like do a day of just writing some little essay or look at some notes that you have or write something nutty, you know, like, um, I think you may have seen that. Like I did that. I did an essay recently that was like the how to write an essay list. Yeah. yeah. I think that's how we ran into each other on Twitter or something. I yeah, don't know. But yeah. um, I think we were following each other, but not like we weren't like interacting with each other. Right, and I right. saw that one. I just thought it was like really cute and funny. And it was like, all right, we got to got to talk to this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. But that that was like one of those days where I was like, I got nothing. You know, and so then I let myself just write some weird little thing. And so so I have my most recent published book is uh, a collection of essays on chronic pain. And all of those came out of cheating on a memoir. And so they were mm-hmm. all just stuff that I wasn't supposed to be doing. Like I think of all those as like recess from yeah. my real job. <laughs> yeah. And it ended up being a book before the other one. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I was going to ask if any of like this creative infidelity was like <laughs> <laughs> if those playful essays actually turned into something or if they were just a sandbox to play in, but it looks like it a lot of it actually ends up turning into something. It really does. Yeah, and I think it's helpful for me because it's just sometimes the projects are so big that you almost you know, like you were saying with your 20 minute things, you can get fatigued and then your lack of excitement about the project like ends up coming up on the page, you know, and you don't want that. So I don't know. I just I guess I use a lot of breaks and bribes in my writing process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you in terms of um, like, do you go for long walks or or anything of that nature too to kind of, you know, just get out into nature and, you know, let you know, let some little bit of exercise kind of recharge your battery. Um, let's see. I walk the dog, mm-hmm. which is yeah, good. that counts. <laughs> and then um, I meditate often, almost daily, and I feel like that really helps. But I also think, like, I really like visual art, and I like seeing things. And I feel like sometimes when my tank is empty, like when I'm just not feeling very creative, like I need to go see art. And then that usually like somehow recharges me to want to write again. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. Well, sometimes a question I like asking people too is like, what other artistic media do you consume to kind of inform what it is you do? You know, you're a writer, but look, you go to a museum and see some paintings and you're like, oh, that that mood yeah. or like that feeling that they're conveying with those tools. Like, how can I do that in my work? 
Like, so exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like almost every art form, like I'll just, just, just about like going to see dance. I mean, that's one of the great things about working on a college campus. There's so much, you know, so almost anything that's not what I do is so helpful. Mm -hmm. I like, especially ballet. I want to write a book about ballet. And oh really? I, That's I re- awesome. I I've never I've never danced. I've only seen I think one one show or anything. My wife used to uh when she was when she was younger, she she danced. But I I'm I love I love the art but more than anything I love the almost monastic commitment mm. and devotion to that art. Mm-hmm. And that's what really triggers triggers me just that that zealous commitment to get to that level. I yeah. just, I love it. And to be like such an outsider to maybe write about that, I think it would be kind of fun just to learn, learn about it, but also learn about these really these freaks that are just so physically gifted, but they're you know genetically gifted, but they also have to have a mindset to do it for hours and hours and hours every single day. Yeah. I, I love reading about um, like, the process and life story of painters for some reason, like Mm -hmm. that's another one of those things. You've got to be completely devoted and yeah, to think of like, you know, that's such a solitary pursuit. And I just always think like what trust to be able to write, to be able to do something that there aren't even words to sort of catch you. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like, I, I just, uh, I love, the sort of the work that each visual artist has to do to pursue their their vision and their style so I often will also read you know interviews with visual artists and process narratives about you know how they develop their style over time I love that stuff yeah yeah and and to even to do it with like one's physical body too and Mm. and uh it's a reason I like you know, professional bodybuilders too, because they've got a similar, similar drive. And I just, I kind of wish I had that, like, and and so I admire it so much. So a lot of the stories I read and the ones I'm most drawn to are these people that just have that, that Mm -hmm. that focus, like the, my favorite documentary these days, I've seen it eight times is Jiro dreams of sushi. What is that? Oh my God. It's about the the world's greatest sushi chef in in Tokyo. He's he's probably in his mid nineties now. He was about eighty seven when the movie came out, and he's still working. And wow. the guy is just maniacally obsessed with you know making perfect sushi. Holy smokes! Oh my god, I have to watch this. this you got it. it's on Netflix if you have Netflix, and it's directed by David Gelb, who's someone I've been hounding on Twitter to get him on this podcast to oh. talk about that. He created the Chef's Table series on Netflix too. Oh, okay. So, and the movie is just gorgeous. The music is gorgeous behind it and then the drive of these of these guys to and specifically Jiro and what he's set up is just having wow. this 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 devotion to a craft and just slowly incrementally getting better at it day after day, year after year, decade after decade. It's just really inspiring. Right. And that is really, I mean, that's really what it is, is like, you know, being devoted to a craft and not, you know, I mean, with something like that, there's no one who arrives and says, you know, you've met a certain level, Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're 
your barometer for how you're doing ends up having to be just very internal yeah. and have, and, and getting to the point where that is completely internalized is, um, that definitely, you know, it seems like a, it's a far off goal, but I totally, I can see how compelling that is. Yeah. And it's just this, uh, it's just teaches you that you just have to be really patient and cultivate mm -hmm. patience. And that's really hard when you're, mm -hmm. when you're in the mud and struggling, struggling to get a byline, struggling to make a living with, with the, with this thing you like, and then to see this, everyone's successes on social media too. And you're like, man, I just, I feel like I can do that, but I'm just, I'm here in this mud and they're doing that. And it's, it, it can be really hard to cultivate that sense of patience. Oh, definitely. I mean, in a book is not, it's weird. Like a book is just an object mm -hmm. and it, and all it's like needlepoint, right? Like all the mess is hidden behind it. And yeah. so there's no representation of like the long tentacles and roots this thing has, <laughs> right. you know, it'd be awesome. Like, yeah. Like, can you imagine a book, but having behind it all like this representation of all the evil that it took to get to this nice <laughs> rectangular thing? Yeah. <laughs> That'll be my first sculpture series. <laughs> Please. I will come to the opening. <laughs> So, you know, you said you're in, you're a part of some writing groups mm -hmm. um, and and you're you're someone who's very accomplished. You've published a lot of books, a ton of essays. Um, and I suspect people in your group have as well. Uh, but uh, how how have you processed or worked through um, maybe jealousies uh, that you might have felt towards other other people? Um in in this line of work, you know, coping with those feelings of competition and jealousy. I wonder mm -hmm. how you process that, if that's a feeling that's crept into you at all. Oh, I think, I mean, I think that's just a, it's a natural thing when, um, you know, you're really aware of other people in a community who are also following the same pursuit that you are. I mean, I think I'm often, <laughs> I'm often jealous of novelists, mm -hmm. you know, because it just feels like, oh, like you could do what you want, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like your universe can contain the things that you, yeah. But I think, you know, then they have the, the, the trouble of like actually birthing this universe all on their own. I mean, I think I, you know, my stuff is mostly published uh, with uni a university press, a wonderful university press, University of Nebraska. Yay. But, mm -hmm. you know, there, I think for a lot of us, there's the fantasy of like, you know, a big five book that becomes a huge thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's also one reason why I love writers on social media, because I feel like the people I follow are people who are like truth tellers who are intent on unmasking a lot of that mystique about, you know, that fantasy of you get a big five book published and everything is perfect. You know, like we know that's not the case and we know that you can have a huge book published and then you cannot get another offer of publication if you don't sell well. Do you know what I yeah. mean? So I, I feel like, you know, like the writer, the writer, Cheryl Strayed, she has written essays about the state of her finances before wild was published. And I just feel like, the more writers talk about money in particular and the sort of the horrifying state of 
you know, being able to support yourself or not as a freelance writer these days. Yeah. Um, I mean, that really uh, mitigates like sort of any the jealousies, I think, often come from fantasies of not being able to see everything that a book has cost a person to make, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, like I'm, I just, so yeah, in some ways, social media is a problem, right? Because it also gives you all this information about all these super productive people meeting great successes. But then it also delivers that antidote if you look in the right direction. And, and, you know, there's also so many, like, social media helps me find books that I end up completely adoring that were never huge successes, mm-hmm. you know, so I wouldn't have found them. I don't think without social media. And then I become aware, like I've never heard of this thing and it's the most, or I had, I almost missed it. And it's the most brilliant thing I've ever read, you know? So that helps me to understand the universe that we work in as you know, it's capricious and it's somewhat, you know, what makes something a big book is it's, you know, it's a gamble and it's often, you know, just it's whether something is big is just often by chance. So, yeah, it's it's amazing how much like good work is being done out there. That's just goes unnoticed because there's just so much out there. It's, uh, but so you really just have to be super grounded in the process of making the thing and not put too much pressure on it to support you, I guess. Right. Right. And I also, I mean, I, I unfollow and mute people. Like if I realize, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's an important tool. Like I protect my mental space and I notice when I'm feeling jealous of someone or when their social media presence, like activate something in me that's going to make me distracted with like, okay, they're presenting a compelling narrative of their perfect life. That's doing something to me. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like me, I will often not unfollow, but I'll mute them because I'm human like anybody else. And I'll get distracted by those live lives and those narratives, even if they're not accurate. So yeah, I keep, I keep a sort of a close handle on, what perspectives about writing I'm allowing into my head. Right. Yeah. The headspace is very fragile. And so I kind of like that you have ways like you can feel the woodpecker sort of you know, <laughs> hammering its beak on your head. Totally. <laughs> totally. If you, I mean, if you encounter someone on social media and all of a sudden you're feeling like your own life sucks, like danger. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So the one last thing I want to touch upon too, you know, you've got a, uh, your latest essay, uh, Starbucks and shipwrecks is in in creative nonfiction. I I wanted to just talk a little bit about that and where that came from and, and how you, uh, how you came about that. Cause this was a particular, uh, an intoxication themed issue. So I'm sure you, you saw that met the call with, with your essay. So like, what was the, the process behind your essay and why was it a good fit for, you know, this quarterly magazine. Oh God, that essay. So that was actually while I was, so I I was writing this memoir that I think is finished, uh, on like sort of multi-generational substance abuse, Mm -hmm. the happy topic. And, uh, and at one phase I had had, 
like Moby Dick was in in it for some reason, right? And it it made sense to me, but multiple people who read a chapter were like, "This does not work." And uh, I've been I've been working with Moby Dick in a f- feeling that it had to belong in a substance abuse essay for I swear to God ten years. <laughs> and Hattie uh, at Creative Nonfiction, she's so wonderful. Hattie Fletcher in that, you know, I told her, you know, so many essays that I've gotten published there are essays that have, you know, they're like eight year essays, 10 year essays that I finally, they, they make a call out for something that just fits. So I had the Moby Dick piece for a long time and then, but the tone was wrong. Like the tone was like rageful. Like that's not fun to read. (laughs) And then I had this other piece, which is like me hanging out with my friend. And it was like the sort of joyful, appreciative tone. And then when I realized I could put the two of them together, like chocolate and peanut butter, Hmm. then it finally worked. But it took it took like wanting to write that essay and like having it as like a very unsatisfying chunk of a word document and, and trying to do it in so many ways for so long. So. I'm really happy about that essay because finally it is out of my life. <laughs> right. I, uh, oh, it's so funny you say that, Sonia. Like this this baseball book I'm working on that I just yeah. – like that's my great motivation to finishing it is I want to move on. I right. want it gone out of my life. And if it gets published, awesome. I will do the requisite promotion and readings and I will love it. I will – but I want it done because I, w- I have other projects I'd love to get to. But it's got to go. Oh, yeah. I feel like I've reached that phase with, like, every single <laughs> – like, I feel like that's what it is. Like, you just – you eventually build up this, like, level of, like, I love this, but I also hate it. And yeah. when hate is more than love, then it's got to be gone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, uh, you've given me a, a wonderful hour of your Sunday here, Sonia. This was a ton of fun getting to talk to you, really, and uh, for the first time. This was a ton of fun. Thank um, you so much. Yeah. Where can people find you online, Sonia? I am at www.soniahuber.com. Nice. And uh, what's your Twitter? Same, Sonia Huber. Fantastic. Well, awesome. Well, let's let this be the, the first of what I hope are many conversations down the road about your work. Thank you so much, Brandon. You're welcome. Take care, and we'll uh, we'll be in touch. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Wowie zowie. That was fun. It usually is, but that one felt like some serious repartee, no? Hashtag repartee. Hey, thanks to Goucher College's MFA in nonfiction, Baypath University's MFA in creative nonfiction, and for disquietude for making the show possible. And thanks to you, CNFers, you are the reason I make this show. Please consider linking up this episode and others on social media. And also consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also email the show, email me or the show, Podcast at gmail.com. Keep the conversation going on Twitter, at CNFpod. Also Instagram, at CNFpod. Let me know what you think, what stuck out to you. Digital fist pumps, devil horns, and skull emojis for those who participate. It's the least I can do. Okay, that ought to do it for this week, friend. Remember, if you can't do interview, see ya! See ya!